0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Yogi Berra is arguably the greatest catcher of all time. He played in the, the heyday of that team from New York and and won several championships with them, and went on to become a coach. But what Yogi Bear is probably just as well known for from being a baseball player is his witty sayings. Here's a couple that stuck out to me uh, that I've always found funny. Uh, One day when he was a coach, he was explaining his philosophy and he told the reporters there that day that baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. He said one day uh, that the future just ain't what it used to be. He was known to say that you can observe a lot just by watching. And the one that I want to sort of think about this morning is when he said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. In many ways, it feels like we are at a, a sort of fork in the road right now, doesn't it? Our our hearts are torn and can see two ways in front of us. This week has been a lot. We have seen a lot of good as as vaccines have begun to go out to the public, even in our community this week. There is that glimmer of hope, that twinkle that says maybe, just maybe we're a little bit closer to the end of all this than we were. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't feel hopeful, isn't there? There's a lot of stuff that we've seen this week that has been evil, has been destructive. We've seen COVID on the rise in our city and even in our church community. We have seen death and destruction in our nation's capital. And it's easy for, easier for most of us to focus on the bad, to focus on the evil. And I think that part of that is just what the last 12 months or so have taught us to do. We've become fatigued with crisis. And so it has led us to just sort of drop our shoulders in skepticism, to let out a, a, a sigh of exhaustion and to resign ourselves to a sort of nihilism a meaninglessness of everything around us. We just can't. And so we cope. One of the ways we cope is either by disengaging or hyper-engaging. Think about it this way. When things started to happen on Wednesday, most of us fell into one of two categories. Either we heard what was happening And we sort of went on about our day with our families or our children. Or we heard what was happening and proceeded to hit the refresh button every 42 seconds for the next five hours. We were either hyper engaged or disengaged. We were either morbidly curious or disgustedly not wanting to see anything. In many ways, this is the fork before us for all of our lives right now. And most of us look around and just see hardship, just see pain. And so God is calling us to something different. He's calling us to something apart from exhaustion, apart from the resignation to meaninglessness that we feel creeping up in our hearts. The passage that we're going to look at at today from James was picked out uh, several months ago. And yet this passage speaks very clearly to us this week because it sets before us a choice. It sets before us a choice of how we're going to look at the world around us. Because if we look at the world around us, and even when we look in our own hearts, we see a lot of death. We see a lot of destruction. But James is going to remind us that there is also life and beauty and goodness. But where does this life and death decision come from. You see, God is calling us, you, me, to live an abundant life centered around him and his goodness. But what we do, and I'm guilty of this too, is that we choose to follow the evil in our own hearts that leads to death, that leads to our own destruction and hopelessness. So I'd encourage you, if you have a a Bible close by, to open it up to James chapter 1. If you don't, maybe pull it up on your phone, or if you're watching on your phone, that's okay. I'm going to read it, and the words are actually going to be on the screen behind me, so you can read along with what I'm saying there as well. I'm going to read verses 12 through 18 of James chapter 1. It says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, He'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning, this week. James begins this passage by recapping what we read and talked about last Sunday, by recapping the idea of the the testing of our faith, of what happens when trials come into our lives. And he says that we are blessed not for having trials— but we are blessed when we remain steadfast in the face of those things. This is not some sort of material blessing. Rather, what James is doing is calling to mind this rich tradition of wisdom that runs throughout the Bible, that's picked up in the Psalms, when the Psalms begins with, blessed is the man who dwells with God. And then Jesus, in his first major sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Says what as he begins it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And now James gives us another category of the blessed. Blessed are those who remain steadfast in the face of trials. But he adds a new wrinkle that he didn't mention in the first part of this chapter he mentions a reward for our steadfast endurance. And that reward is life itself crowned upon our heads by God. This is something that is that is now and not yet. This is yes, the life that is to come when we spend eternity with Jesus on the new earth, but this is also something that we get right now. Because as we spoke of last week, true Christian maturity is genuinely life-giving to us because it teaches us how to approach the world and see things with new eyes. Eyes that aren't focused on just the temporary things around us, but on the eternal things that we interact with every day. And so James says, blessed is the one who endures this sort of trial. But then he pivots to begin to talk about temptation as well. And it's difficult because there's a fine line between trial and temptation. In fact, the words that James uses for this are nearly identical words. What's the difference? Because James has said pretty clearly that our our trials are a part of God's plan for us, but then in a second, he's gonna remind us that our temptations do not come from God. What is he doing? James is expressing the truth that our trials are things that happen externally to us and are opportunities for our faith to be strengthened. That's a lot different than what temptation is. Temptation is something that comes at us internally and that creeps up from the corner of our own heart. And James is going to delve deeply into into that he's going to tell us what our temptation is like and he begins by saying don't blame god This is a warning to us don't say when you're tempted that i'm being tempted of god and and those of us who are christians this morning uh, those of us who have been around the church for a long time would sort of go yes yes you can't say that god is tempting you oh no no you can't ever say that god would never make us do evil And we all agree, except we have found a way to subtly blame God for our temptation. Even those of us who would read this verse and affirm it and say, yes, I believe that, have in a way, unwittingly even, found a way of practicing blaming God for our own temptation. Let me tell you how this works. We have used our knowledge of personalities, our understanding of how the human brain works to separate ourselves from the responsibility of our sin. We do this with a little phrase, God made me this way. We use that phrase, God made me this way, to distance ourselves from the responsibility of our own sin. I can't help it, God made me this way. The word for when we, when we say that God is behind something or God has said something or God has done something when he has not, the word for that is blasphemy. So when we use the excuse, God made me this way to excuse our sin, to separate ourselves from responsibility and accountability, what we are doing is blaspheming. God is not the author of evil, either in the world or in our own human hearts. Church, I would encourage you, Christian friends, I would encourage you To take stock of the ways that you minimize your sin by shrugging it off as that's just sort of the way it is. I've just always been this way. By by taking and saying, well, these are just the tendencies. No, repent. Repent of the ways that you self-justify by just chalking it up to, well, I'm just kind of made that way. That's just the cut of my grain. That's just the cut of my jib. No, repent. Because when you self-justify like that, you're not only removing yourself from the opportunity to see God truly change you, but you're also blaspheming God's name. And blasphemy is something that's probably on some of our hearts and minds this morning. It's easy. I said that it's blaspheming to say God was a part of something that he was not a part of. And many of your hearts like mine went, yes, yes, that's right. And we sort of but there's another step that's harder, which is to actually allow that knife, to actually allow the truth of the fact that we do this as well to cut into our hearts. It's easy to call out the sin of others. It's hard, awfully dark. James tells us exactly that. James says, look, when you are tempted, here is what is happening. You are being lured away and enticed by your own desires. James is using a very Bass Pro Shop set of illustrations here. When he says that we're being lured away by our desires, this is the picture of of a fisherman who baits the hook. And no fish says, you know, I'm really interested in being somebody's dinner tonight. I'm just going to go ahead and grab that bear hook. No, what does the fish think? Oh, there's a worm. I like worms. I'd like to eat a worm right now. And that seems like a pretty good worm. Never seen a purple worm before, but that's okay. I'll still eat it. And then what happens as soon as the fish gulps that worm down. He is hooked. The same is true of a trap. The the raccoon traps that we set out here in Florida encourage the raccoon to get into the trap by enticing it with the pleasure. Look, there's some good cat food in there. You'll like it. It'll be fun. You'll get to eat and it'll be awesome. And it's only after the raccoon has entered all the way in and the door has slammed behind him that he realizes his mistake. This is the picture that James paints of what happens in our hearts. Our sinful desires lure us. They lure us by making us think that it's that, that what we're going to get is something that we're not. Our sinful desires trap us. They creep up from inside of us and tell us tales that pleasure will be found if we would just do this thing. In every case what sin always does is it always overpromises and it always underdelivers. Sin always overpromises and always underdelivers, but yet we keep biting the hook. We keep walking into the trap? Because sin always tricks us. I I can't help but think of the, the classic 80s movies, The Gremlins. And if you haven't seen them, The Gremlins is the story of these cute, cuddly, almost koala bear looking things. And they're very, very cute, but you're not supposed to let them stay up late at night or or eat certain food. I I honestly don't remember. Because when that happens, they turn into these grotesque, slimy little things that cause all sorts of problem in your life. Church, your problem and mine is that our sin is a gremlin. We think it's cute and cuddly, but it is murderous and wanting to destroy us. That's what happens. We are lured away and enticed by our desires. And when our desires become pregnant with our actions, they lead to sin and sin always leads to death. But we keep biting it. We keep harboring these things in in our own lives. We keep cuddling the very thing that is killing us. And James says, no, the natural result of chasing your sinful desires is always the same. It's always sin. And sin always gives birth to death. It's easy to see evil in the world around us. It's a little bit harder to see evil in our own hearts. But what about the good that I talked about earlier? Where are we gonna, where are we gonna find that? James says, James acknowledges that. James can sense that sort of feeling of, yeah, I can see the way that my evil desires are driving me and killing me. But what about the good? Whatever trial they were going through, the evil was eclipsing the good. He was blotting it out, which is something I think we can sympathize with. But James points them to the origin of all goodness. Can you see it in our text? Can you see where this this goodness comes from? This goodness comes from God himself. Now, as Christians, we would say, yes, of course, I, I knew that. I knew that God is good. I even have a little thing of God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. I know that. That's something I know. You don't have to tell me that. I want you to do a thought experiment just for a second. I want you to think about a way in which God has been tangibly good to you this week. Think of a way that you've seen God's goodness show up for you this week. Even us Christians who profess to believe in the truth, goodness, and beauty of God don't often look for it. We don't often pay attention to it and take note of it. But it's there because every good and every perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to ask you a similar but different question about goodness. Where does goodness come from? I mean, we've we've all seen some form of goodness. Maybe not in the past so many days, so many months, whatever it is. But when you bump into goodness, when it shows up in your life, if you're not a Christian, where do you say that goodness comes from? Whatever your answer to that question is, is probably what you believe is the most significant thing. It's probably what you believe is your functional God. But Christians... Christians and non-Christians alike, it's easy for evil to eclipse good in our vision, which is why James explains things the way that he does. James begins to sort of look up towards the heaven and explain God's goodness in terms of the sun, the moon, and the stars. He says that that God is the father of lights. He is the creator of all, all of the heavenly bodies. And not only is he our creator, but he's also our sustainer with faithful sustenance because there is no shadow of turning, no flickering or variation. The the, the image that he's using is the image of of eclipses. The, The sun cannot be blotted out by the moon, except when it is at eclipses. And that's not, Jesus is more than that. Jesus has no eclipses and he's a new sort of father. You know, it's interesting that James was using a lot of birth language when he talked about our sin. He said, what? That when our, our desires give birth to sin and then sin gives birth to death, but he tells us there's another story possible. Because what does he say in the last verse that we read this morning? Of his own will, he brought us forth. That's the same thing. He gave birth to us by the word of truth. Sin always leads to death, but the word of truth of God gives us new life in these dead bones. In these hopeless bones, we find something new. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve experienced death. And they experienced it in the now and not yet sense. When they sinned, what happened? They became guilty. They wanted to hide themselves from God. They were estranged from God. And not only that, they felt ashamed. They felt alienated from one another. They wanted to go hide their nakedness from one another. But they also knew that it meant spiritual death that was to come. And the same is true for us. Sin, which is the child of our evil desires, is the cause of our guilt and our shame even now. But there's also the not yet, which is apart from Jesus, we also have the death that is eternal punishment, hell, in the future. But the good news, church, is that, that God has taken this all on himself. When, when we talk about the cross, the cross was the labor pains that gave us new birth. The cross was the labor pains that brought forth us as new life. It was Jesus taking the death that we deserved to give us the life that we could never have apart from him. And he did this so that we might be the first fruits, the, the prime harvest. If you're uh, from here in St. Petersburg, if you're living here now, be on the lookout because in about 10 days, the first crop of plant city strawberries are going to hit the shelves. And that first crop that was born in the coldest part of winter that was harvested in late January and maybe the beginning of early February are always the sweetest strawberries. What God is saying about us is that we, Church, the ones that he has given himself for and died for, the one, the ones who are trusting in him. We are the first fruits of all of the goodness that he is going to do in this world and the world to come. This life that he has given us, that he promised at the beginning of the passage, that he promises us at the end of the passage that we read this morning is both now and not yet. This is a life that is not rooted in anger or desire for power. This is a life that is not about what country you live in or who leads this country or that country. It's a life settled, settled on the goodness, truth, and beauty of an unchanging God. It's life in the uneclipsable light of the son of God. And so that's how Jesus shepherds us through a week like this that we have gone through. He shepherds us through a week where we have seen some good, but so much bad. He shepherds us by refocusing our hearts on the unchanging truth of who he is and the life that he gives us now and the life that is to come. So church, let us do what Paul tells us when using a similar metaphor. Let us be the scent of life in a dying world. Let us show truth and goodness and beauty to those around us so that in, the, in a world that smells like death, we might be life. He is calling us to, to be like, like Cinnabon. You know what it's like to walk through a mall. You remember what that was like decades ago when that was a thing that we did. And you walked by the Cinnabon store and what did you do? You stopped dead in your tracks. You stopped dead in your tracks. Because what? The smell of goodness. The smell of life. That is what we had. That is what he is calling us to be. And when somebody stops and asks us, when, when we have opportunity to share with others, let us point them to the source of all life and all light, that is Jesus himself. Let's pray.